You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. If you're willing and able to remain standing while we read God's Word, turn to the book of Ruth. You thought I was going to say Revelation, didn't you? Uh, Uh, I did say that after the first year, we'll get back to Revelation, but when I said after the first year, that gives me 12 months, right? So I don't have, I'm not nailed down to the first of the year. We will get back to that, though. I promise you, um, I just, uh, you need to know that chapters 10 through 16 in the book of Revelation, my goodness, they are a challenge, and I'm working through that now, but we will come back to the Revelation. However, next few weeks, we're going to be in this glorious story of the book of Ruth. So turn there, Ruth chapter 1, Judges, then Ruth, Old Testament. Let's pick it up in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two sons then took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the other was Ruth. They lived there for about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Father, give us guidance in your word this morning. May the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be acceptable unto you. Draw people to yourself. And Father, just as Chris said, that my goal is not to be seen. Uh, Lord, I, I pray that you would be lifted up. Thank you for this great story we're about to embark on. Uh, Father, I pray that you would teach us the great truths of your word and change us from the inside out. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. I want to start out with... William Shakespeare, of all places, <laughs> in his story called Macbeth, and in Act 4, Scene 3, there's this statement that I was reminded of. I, I'd heard this statement years ago, but it wasn't until I started studying that it came back up. But there's a character in that play called Macduff, and he makes a statement that I think is very relevant to what we're going to read about in the life of Naomi and Ruth. This is what he says. He says, quote, Every morn, new widows howl. New orphans cry and new sorrows strike heaven on the face. What did he mean by that? I don't have to convince you that there's something wrong with the world. Each of you have your own troubles, pains, difficulties that you've had to go through countless times. So I don't have to convince you that there's something wrong with the world. But I think a discussion that we need to have is what's going on in the world, the brokenness in the world, and and the impact that that has in our life. And that quote from Macbeth basically says that every morning there are new widows. Every morning there are more orphans. Every week there's more people impoverished. Every week there's more people with diagnosis of cancer and diabetes and heart disease. Every week there are more marriages that are falling apart. Now, if you came for an encouraging message today, hang with me, I'm going to get there. But the fact is, every morning... While the Bible says there are blessings and His joy and mercy is fresh every morning, the reason God's joy and mercy is fresh every morning is because, folks, quite frankly, we need His mercy and His joy fresh every morning because also at the same time, our broken lives every day. We know it well here in Robinson County. New people addicted. More people in trouble with the law. 
But, but the, the author Shakespeare goes a little further and he says that, that all of these things, these new widows and new orphans and all these new troubles that are fresh every new morning, he says that they strike at the face of heaven. Now, what did he mean by that? So on the one hand, we know that there's plenty of troubles to go around, but on the other hand, Shakespeare says that, that those troubles strike at the face of heaven, and I would dare so far as to say strike at the very face of God. What does he mean by that? Well, it's in the middle of our troubles, in the middle of our, our valleys, in the middle of the darkness, oftentimes, far often, and I'm as guilty as anyone, in those moments, we begin to strike out towards God. What does that mean? In those moments, what often happens is we begin to get bitter. And what happens from that bitterness is we begin to blame God. We begin to blame him for the troubles. We begin to blame him for the circumstances. Even, even choices that we've made, even, even mistakes that we've made, even disobedient acts that we've done as his children, we blame him for it. So when Shakespeare says not only are there new orphans and new widows every morning, that in the hearts of people we often blame God. How often have you heard someone in your family or even on the news strike out against God for the circumstances that they are in? And really what it comes to, it deep down in our heart, here's the question we have, but we don't often voice this question. If, especially if we've grown up in church, we've been around church, we, we have these doubts that linger deep in our heart, but we never, ever voice them, especially to anyone else. And here's the doubts that we may have. Is God really worth following? Is he really worth my devotion? You hear enough about the attributes of God that he is, is all-knowing and he's all-powerful and he's altogether loving and, and he's altogether in control. You hear that in the context of, of God's sovereignty and his providence, which means that, that God is guiding all history and space and time to his ends, that every detail in your life, while at the same time you're making choices, God is ultimately in control. So you hear all of this about God, but in your circumstance, in your pain, in your trouble, you're having a hard time wrapping your arms around a God who's all-powerful and all-loving at the same time. Because if he's all-loving and he's all-powerful, then why am I going through what I'm going through? Maybe you just recently lost someone very close to you. And those questions have become very raw. But you've not dared to say that to anyone. Maybe... Maybe God's not real. Maybe, maybe this God that we've been told all of our lives, maybe, he, maybe he's just a fable that, that people in the Bible made up. Or maybe if he's real, if, if God is real, then he, then he must not care because he simply has nothing to do with the trouble that I'm in and he seems to not be doing anything about it. Or, or if he has the power to change it and he chooses not to, then how am I going to ever believe that he loves me? You ever been there? You see, even now, you're a little afraid to admit it. There's another quote that I want to give you, and it comes from another author. And his name is C.S. Lewis. It, came, it comes from the same exact story that I told you about last week. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce. I really encourage you to read that. Matter of fact, read anything that C.S. Lewis writes. It's awesome. But in that book, there's a, there's a character there. His name's George MacDonald, and this is what he says. So this is exactly the opposite of what Shakespeare was saying through Macbeth. I want you to hear what C.S. Lewis says through The Great Divorce. He says, ah, the saved, 
What happens to them is best described as the opposite of a mirage. What seemed when they entered it, in other words, when they entered their trouble or entered their despair, when they entered it to the veil of misery, turns out, when they look back to have been a well. And where present experience saw only salt deserts, memory truthfully records that the pools were actually full of water. This is what C.S. Lewis is saying in that story. He's saying that when we begin to look back at our troubles, when we begin to look back at the valleys, when we begin to step aside for a moment, pause for a moment, let our anger just kind of subside for a moment, and we raise our head up enough, and we begin to look around, we begin to see that the very area that we thought was a desert, that we never saw God working, that we didn't even know God was doing anything, when we lift our head long enough, we begin to find out that the desert we thought we were in was actually a land full of water and wells and lakes. The book of Ruth is set in a very tumultuous time in the nation of Israel. The book right before it is the book of Judges, and right before that we have the story of Joshua. Joshua, that leader that takes up the reins of the nation of Israel to lead them into the promised land because Moses hands off to Joseph and then Moses dies. uh, Joseph, I'm sorry, Joshua is leading the people. They cross over the Jordan and they begin to take the land. They They do not finish the job. The land is not completely in the hands of the Israelites by the time we get to the book of Judges. Joshua is getting to the end of his life, and Joshua looks at the nation of Israel, and he says to them, now, today you must choose who you're going to serve. Today, right now. Choose. Are you going to serve God? Are you going to be faithful to him and obedient to him? And the people in unison say, we trust God. We will follow him. And Joshua says, okay, but you got to go in and finish the job. you got to go in, and you've got to continue to drive the people out. Not only do you got to drive the people out, but you can't intermarry with them. You can't take on their customs. The idea was both Moses and Joshua shared this concern that when the people went into the land that was already inhabited, that rather than driving them out, that they would just simply become like them, that they would accept their gods, idols, as their gods. So Joshua says, choose, they chose. Joshua dies, the book of Judges opens, and you know what we find out? It's not long, takes a little while, but not long, the people begin to get apathetic. They begin to just kind of relax. They begin to kind of just rest on their laurels. They, they are no longer chasing the people out of the land. They begin to live alongside those people, and exactly what Joshua warned them about is exactly what happens. They begin to worship the gods of the Canaanites. And in that moment, God begins to warn them, and the next thing you know, God says, I'm going to bring judgment upon you. And through the book of Judges, we have these cycles. I call them cycles of sin and disobedience. All through the book of Judges, we have the people turn their back on God. God brings judgment. And then through that judgment, the people begin to cry out to God for help. God, in his grace, raises up a judge or a leader. That leader, even though most of the time that leader is broken as well, that leader leads the people to a place of repentance. God forgives them, restores them, And then for a period of time, everything is good, only for them to go right back into disobedience and the whole cycle all over again. Joshua, the conquest that Joshua began by the time we get to the book of Judges and the end of the book of Judges, here's what we know was happening. The people were doing what was right in their own eyes. They had no concern for what God said. 
They had no concern about what their mission was. And Ruth is set within that time frame. Ruth's life and Naomi's life and Elimelech, the people we're going to learn about in this story, is set within the time frame of Israel where Israel is experiencing, well, disobedience and shattered dreams. The whole idea of going into a promised land and, and this land that flows with milk and honey, the Israelites, because of their disobedience now, is living a life of shattered dreams and brokenness. And Ruth is living in that time frame. There's some things we need to wrestle with in the weeks ahead. Here's a question I want you to wrestle with. And more, maybe it's a question you've been wrestling with for a while, but you've never said it to anyone. You've never vocalized it. But here it is. Can I, should I, love and trust God even though he's allowed pain in my life? I have no idea what some of y'all are going through. Some of you, I know your story. Some of you, I don't. But I dare say, either you're coming out of a, out of a valley, getting ready to go into a valley, you see, the, you see the storm on the horizon, you're not sure how it's all going to play out, but you, you sense in your spirit that you're about to enter into a period of time that there's going to be some hardship in your life, or maybe you've been in that place for a long time. And maybe deep down on the inside, if we peel the layers back, the question that is deep on the inside of you, is God, is God worth trusting? Because my circumstances are saying something totally different than trusting God. So let's look at the story of Ruth and Naomi and Elimelech and these two sons. Let's pick it up and let's take a look at the setting of this story in the days when the judges ruled. So there we see the book of Ruth is within the story of the book of Judges. We don't know exactly where. And the judges ruled there and there was a famine in the land. And we need to pause there for just a moment. So this family lives in Bethlehem in Judah. They are an Israelite family. This is a family that came into the land. This is a family that has been part of the covenant promises. This family is living in Bethlehem. But then all of a sudden, a famine becomes part of their story. Now, all through the Old Testament, we see times of famine. Even in the New Testament, we have stories of famine. Now, those famines could be the result of war, or those famines could be the result of a lack of rain. It could be the result of locusts. But oftentimes what we find in the Bible is that famines sometimes, not all the time, are connected to the very judgment of God. Now, if Ruth is set within the book of Judges, and we know that in the book of Judges, the people are living in disobedience, then could it be that the judgment that God is pouring out on the land to get their attention happens to be the very famine that this family is now struggling with? He says, and Amanda, in the Bible says, and Amanda of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Now we need to pause here for a moment. Moab. That's a very important city when we consider the Old Testament. Moab has its beginnings in a man named Moab. But his birth is, well, quite controversial. There's a guy in the Old Testament, all the way back, you have Abraham and Lot. You remember that story? Lot eventually ends up in a cave with his two daughters. I'm not going to get into the whole story. But what happens in that moment, these daughters want to have children. And they decide, these two daughters plot together to get their father under the influence of alcohol to take advantage of him. And I'll leave some of the big details out for the sake of becoming pregnant by their father. We have a word for that. It's called incest. Okay? So these two daughters fulfill their plan. Both of them get pregnant. The oldest daughter has a son and names him Moab. 
The other daughter has a son, and he's called Ammon. And out of these two daughters, we have, get this, the Moabites and the Ammonites. And out of this incestual relationship, this really, really bad choice. And by the way, this gives us some insight as to how, how this family was living all the way back in those days, all the way through up to the book of Judges. They end up leaving Judah and going to Moab. Now, we're going to have to wrestle with this in the weeks ahead. Was that a really a good choice? Now, I understand Elimelech's trying to take care of his family. He's trying to take care of his boys, trying to make sure they're fed. But leaving the land of blessing, going to a land that is cursed, was probably a very bad choice. Because all, no matter where we find famine in the Bible, what we do find is those who are faithful to God, God provided for them, even in the middle of that famine. Was it tough? Yes. Was it hard? Yes. But I have to question whether this was a good choice. Verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, the names of their two sons were Malion and Chilion. They were Ephratites or Bethlehemites. They, they lived in Bethlehem and they went into the country of Moab and they remained there. So they went to sojourn so that they could find food, but they ended up staying there for quite some time. Now let's look at the nature of the crisis. Verse 3, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Now, for us to really get our arms around this, we really kind of need to think about the culture of Naomi, Elimelech, and what was happening in that day. In that day, a woman was completely dependent upon her husband for protection, provision, for a home, food, everything. So while we think about it in our Western context where you know, women are empowered, you go to work, you can make your own way, in that culture, the way they lived, the husband was the provider for the entire family. And when the husband died... It brought on all kinds of hardship into the life of the widow. And even so much so that, that when God gave the law to Israel, in the law, he made provision for widows. He made sure that the widows were taken care of, that the nation of Israel, as part of their obedience to him and worship to him, would take care of the most vulnerable, and certainly widows were vulnerable. But at least, at least Naomi has these two strapping sons. Because it's one thing to lose your husband, but to not have anyone else to rely on would be a whole other set of circumstances. So at least Naomi has two striping young men, young men who are now married to two Moabite women. Notice the story. After Elimelech dies, she was left with her two sons, and they took Moabite wives. Again, not the best decision from an Israelite perspective, not to intermarry with other cultures, yet they did. Notice that when they moved to Moab, they began to live like Moabites. Didn't even think about it. So they marry a couple of women, Orpah and Ruth. And they live there for 10 years. So get this. So here is an Israelite woman, Naomi, living in Moab with her two sons, who are also Israelites, who are now married to two women from Moab, and they're going to live there and stay there for 10 years. But at least Naomi has these two sons to rely on. But notice where the story goes next. And both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. I really tried to think about how I could help us to understand just how serious this is. So this will be the best I can illustrate it from our Western mindset. Imagine that, that you and your family travel to a Middle Eastern city, kind of a dangerous area, but you go there uh, for whatever reasons and you're there with your family. And ladies, imagine that while you're there, in this foreign land where you have no friends, no family, no connections, 
Uh, you don't know the culture. You don't know the language. You don't know anything. Imagine this, that your husband dies, and also your family dies, and it's just you by yourself. Maybe a daughter-in-law is all you've got, but you're there in a the land, and not only have you lost your family, but you've also lost all of your documents. You don't have a passport. You don't have a birth certificate. You don't have any money. You don't have any credit cards. You don't have a license, and the country you're in could care less about you. You don't know how you're going to get home. You don't know how, where your next meal is going to come from. And in the, all of a sudden, where you were living, you were in a five-star hotel, now you're on the street because you couldn't pay the bill. You have no money, no identity, and no way to get home. That's about as close as I can bring you to how destitute Naomi is at this moment. That the hardship that she's experiencing in this moment, in her culture, is that she has nothing and then you add to that that in this culture, women were not highly valued. Their value flowed from who their husband was and the family connection. All of that's gone. And here she is with her two daughter-in-laws who happen to be women of Moab. Let's take a look at the rest of this crisis and how she's going to respond. Verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited the people, the people of Israel, and given them food. So why is Naomi and Ruth and Orpah out in the fields? Because that's the only place they can find food. They're literally out in the fields trying to scrape up whatever food they can find. Because again, the loss of her husband, the loss of their sons, they have no way to function in this society. So they're simply out in the fields trying to find whatever scraps of food they can find. And while they're out there with other people who are impoverished, they hear somebody share a rumor that back in Israel, back in Bethlehem, God has blessed his people and food is abundant. So she decides that she's going to return back to her homeland. Because at least in her homeland, she's got some friends. At least there's food there. At least she can survive there. At least she knows some people there and knows the culture there. Verse 7, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her, to her, to her, to her two daughter-in-laws, go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me and with the dead. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. So they get, I don't know where they are, but maybe they're right at the border of the land of Moab. I'd say that Naomi's been struggling with this for a while. So she stops right before they're getting ready to maybe cross out of the land. And she, she sets his, her two daughter-in-laws down. And she says, listen, the best thing for you two was simply to, be go, to go back home, go back to your families. Maybe you'll be able to find a husband. Maybe you can get on with your life. But I can tell you, if you stay with me, if you stay with me, then you're going to share in my pain and my suffering. So Naomi's trying to convince these two daughter-in-laws that the best thing for them is to simply go back to their families. Maybe there's a family member. Maybe there's someone there that could take them in. Maybe there's the opportunity for them to be married. They're still young enough to have children. But for Naomi, for them to follow her, she doesn't see any good that can possibly come from that. Notice, notice how she, she frames this. She says, have I yet sons in my womb that you may... Come with me. In other words, both of the daughter-in-law say, no, 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 Naomi, we're going to stay with you. Both Orba and Ruth say, no, no, we're going we're to stick with you. And Naomi looks at him and says, do you think somehow that I'm going to be able to provide husbands for you? Do you think somehow that, that I'm going to be able to provide provision for you? 
No, ladies, this is a hopeless, hopeless situation. You still have some hope. You're still young enough. But for me, notice what she says. She says, if I should stay, if I, even, if I have hope, even I should have a husband this night, should I bear sons? Verse 13, would you therefore wait until they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake. Notice this, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Folks, it's in that moment that Naomi's heart is peeled back and we get some insight into what's going on on the inside of Naomi. It's in that moment we find out that she is in fact angry with God, blaming God, that God's against me. How, how can all this be explained any other way? I'm in a foreign land. I lose my husband. I lose my sons. I have no grandchildren. I have nothing. I have no way to take care of myself. I'm eating out of a field. Daughters, you'd be crazy to follow me. Daughters, you'd be crazy to come with me. I can't provide anything for you. And by the way, the hand of the Lord is against me. And if he's against me, then he'll be against you. It's interesting that the Bible talks about bitterness, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament. In the Psalms, it talks about a root of bitterness. Isn't that an interesting image? That the bitterness can grow roots down into your heart. And that root of bitterness will eventually bear fruit in your life, and it's not pleasant fruit at all. Naomi has some roots of bitterness. She says that the hand of the Lord is against her. And when, when, I, when I read all of this, in, in verses 6 uh, through 18, we have a lot of verses dedicated to this interaction between Naomi and these two daughter-in-laws. And, and other times when I've read through the book of Ruth, I've often wondered why is it that God made sure to dedicate this much space of the first chapter to this conversation between Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws? Because in essence, what you have here is the two daughter-in-laws, initially, both of them want to follow along with Naomi. Eventually, Orpah kisses her mother-in-law and heads back down the road to Moab. But back and forth, we have this conversation between Naomi and these daughter-in-laws. And, and I realized this week why it is. There's three reasons why God made sure we had all of this content. First, I think God wants us to see the depth of the despair that Naomi is experiencing. I think in this chapter, in these verses, God pulls back the veil of what's going on in Naomi's heart. And he wants all of us to see how broken this woman is. She's given up on life. She's given up on any blessings. She's given up on anything. And her, her hope is just to simply get by. How many people do you know who've made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ who are living out their faith simply trying to get by? Their heads are down. They, they live as though Jesus never walked out of a tomb. They live as though they've never been forgiven. They live as though the Bible's irrelevant. But yet they name the name of Jesus, but yet in their life, every practical way that you can look at their life, there is no life, there's no joy, there's no peace. I'll tell you what I think it is. I think it's the hurts and the pains and the valleys have built up till eventually a person's bitterness turns into, I want nothing to do with God. Does that describe you this morning? I think there's another reason why God gave us all of this interaction. The second reason is to set the stage for us to understand how God is going to end up blessing Naomi in the end. I don't want to give the whole story away, but this story is going to have a great ending. 
But before we get there, God's already given us insight into how he's going to do it. Right here, Naomi says to these daughter-in-laws, I can't provide a husband for you. You'd be better off to go back to your homeland and find a husband. In Naomi's mind, the only way that blessing is going to come is through a husband. Of course, in Israelite law, there's this idea of a kinsman redeemer. We'll get into that in the weeks ahead. But the idea is, is that when a, when a husband would die, that the next family member could step in and become the husband. And we'll talk more in length about what that means and how important that was in this culture. But for now, God gives us all of this detail in this interaction between these characters simply to show us that there is hope on the horizon. But I think also I want you to see that how Naomi, when we get hurt, when we get bitter, when we get angry at God, I want you to notice how we put the blinders on. How we can't see God working at all. When we've decided that God is against us, not only do we fail to see that God is at work, but we also tend to exaggerate the very problems and the very valleys that we're in. Isn't that that odd? That when we're in a valley, we tend to exaggerate the valley we're in because we don't see God at work and we're angry with him. That's exactly what Naomi's going to do. And we're going to see that in just a moment. The third reason I think that we have all of this is to contrast how Ruth is going to respond. Now here's a, a lady who did not grow up in a Jewish culture. She does not know the law of God. She does not know the stories. Maybe she's heard a little bit of how the, the uh, Israelites were brought out of Egyptian bondage. Maybe she'd heard that story at some point, but to her it was just a fable. She grew up in Boab. She has no context for who Jehovah God is. She has no idea what he can do. She has no idea of the power that he has. She has no idea of the covenant promises. This woman, Ruth, is the least likely in the story to respond the way she's going to respond. The least likely. We see that all through Scripture, don't we? The one that we would think is like the outsider who has nothing to give to the story. Listen to what Ruth says. Listen to what she says. First of all, it says in verse 14 that Ruth clung to Naomi. Verse 15, and she said, see your sister-in-law, this is Naomi speaking, see your sister-in-law is going back to her people, and notice this, and to her gods. The people of Moab, the Moabites, they had a god named Chemosh. He was a false god, and these people did all kinds of heinous acts in the name of their false god. So Naomi says, see, she's gone back, and Ruth, you should do the same. Verse 16, but Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more if anything but death parts me from you. Folks, in the story, that is completely unexpected. It is not as though Ruth has something to gain from Naomi. What does Naomi have? Nothing. It's not as though Ruth has some kind of idea in her head like, oh, there's going to be some great inheritance when we get back. There's nothing. In Ruth's mind, at this point in the story, there is no reason for her to follow Naomi other than the fact that, number one, God is at work in the life of this Moabitess, which is incredible. And not only that, we see a love and a loyalty here that is just incredible. We see a love and a loyalty here from Ruth towards Naomi that is mind-blowing. We had a wedding here yesterday. So Trey Nobles, Trey Nobles, guy you see over here playing keyboard, guitars, drum, and pretty much everything else on this stage, he and Hannah Henderson became one yesterday. And I, got, I had the privilege of, 
of being part of that wedding, and I used that text. The first time I've ever used that text in a wedding, those verses, 16 and 17. And I said to them on this stage standing right here, I looked at Trey, I said, Trey, here's, here's what we can learn from this, that Hannah is always going to be in your corner, always. Hannah is on your team. Hannah is your biggest fan. Hannah is on your side no matter what comes. Hannah, Trey is in your corner. He's always going to be on your side. He's always going to be with you, walk with you through the valleys. You two are becoming one, and you are saying to this entire congregation that you're going to be loyal to one another. Loyalty is something that is in short supply these days. Do you have a friend? Maybe it's your spouse. Do you have someone that you've made that kind of commitment to? Has someone made that kind of commitment to you? It does not matter what happens. It does not matter what comes. It does not matter the valley we walk through, but I will walk it with you. I will go with you even unto death. I will not abandon you. I'm not even going to try to fix you. I'm just going to be with you. That makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? To have someone in your corner. Because while I'm telling you, when life throws its worst at you, some of the best things you can have is not money, a psychologist, Medication, sometimes the best thing you can have is a friend, a loyal friend who will stick by you. Ruth, the most least expected person in the story, is that person for Naomi. I want you to see how Naomi interprets all of this because it's very, very important to the story. Verse 19, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. So they've left Moab. They've made their way back. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? It begs a question. Why are they asking that question? Your time and trouble and difficulty and pain and failure and broken dreams, not only does it affect you internally, it affects you externally. Trouble can, can change how you look. It can advance, advance the whole aging process. And when she comes into town, people are like, is that, is that Naomi? Is that her? Where's Elimelech? Where's her two sons? Who's the girl that's with her who's obviously not Jewish? They would have been able to pick up on that just by the way she dressed. Notice what happens. The whole town was stirred. Verse 20, I would imagine they're in a courtyard now, and I would imagine that all the people who, who knew, knew Naomi 10 years plus back, 10 years plus when they left, they're all gathered up. Verse 20, she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. Instead, call me Mara which means bitter. You know anyone like that? Do you know anyone who was once pleasant who now is only bitter? That didn't happen overnight, by the way. Do you know of anybody who in your life or in your frame of context, maybe employment or family, that was once a very pleasant person once? Years ago, man, they, they were just, they seemed to just love Jesus and Love the local church and love the Bible and love to pray and love to sing the old hymns, but now they're just a bitter, angry person. Do you know anyone like that? Does that describe you? 
She says, I left pleasant, but I came back better. You want to know why she feels that way? You want to know why, what she's thinking? Well, get this. We're going to get a little bit more insight into her heart. She says, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. And here it is. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? We get really real in this moment, do we not? Naomi is laying her heart bare. And let me just say this. I want to be very clear here. I appreciate the fact that Naomi is willing to be honest about how she feels. Because for a long time, a lot of people who put their faith in Jesus will not be this honest. They feel this. They believe this. They think that God's against them, but they'll never utter those words to another human being because that wouldn't be proper. And in doing so, they fall right into the trap of Satan where they take all of these doubts and they turn them internal. You know, you know, how, you know when doubts are dangerous? When you turn them inward? When you don't have someone you can talk to about those doubts? Maybe for a long time you felt that God is against you. And every time you hear a sermon or every time you hear a song about God's love, you just get angry because that's not your life. That's not your experience. That's not what you've lived out. And so you're constantly wrestling with this idea that that God is love, yet you're in a mess. How do you reconcile the two? She's bitter. And what's interesting about bitterness What's interesting about her anger towards God is it has blinded her to the very blessings and the very work of God in that moment. Get this. She says she's came back empty. Did she come back empty? She could have. She tried to. She tried to talk Ruth into leaving, but Ruth would not leave. Through the providence and the power and the grace of God, God is working through a Moabitess to impact the life of Naomi a person who's given up. She says she's come back empty. Why would she say such a thing? She's got a a daughter-in-law here who has basically committed her entire life to Naomi. How can she say that? It's because in her trouble, in her pain, in her bitterness, it blinds you to the work of God all around you. You want to know if you're bitter or not? The question, how you answer that is, do you see God at work at all in your life? Because trust me when I tell you, he's at work in some 10,000 ways in your life right now, today. Lost person, get this, the God that you say you don't even believe in, the God that you're rejecting, the very gospel that you're pushing aside, that same God is pursuing you in love right now. Whether you want to admit it or not, whether you're an atheist or not, God's love is pursuing you. Isn't that incredible? It pursued me for years before I surrendered to that love. Naomi doesn't even see that God is at work in Ruth. Because her bitterness and her anger has blinded her. As a matter of fact, it's through Ruth, it's through Ruth that restoration is going to happen. We'll get to that later. Just to give you a little insight into where the story's going, it is through this Moabite woman that God is going to blow up Naomi's world. But notice this, Naomi doesn't recognize that it was by God's grace that he led her back to her homeland. The food that was provided in Judah and Bethlehem was the incentive for her to leave Moab and come back to Judah, back to Bethlehem. And get this, when she gets there, she's back among people who know her. She's back among people who she has connections with. She's back in her homeland. But notice this, this one little phrase, this one little phrase right here at the end. 
It says right here in verse 22, they returned from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem. Look at this, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Seems like a you know, innocuous term, just, okay, they're coming back at the barley harvest. That's incredibly important. God has brought them back at the exact time that the barley is now being harvested. And remember, they were in a famine. They had no food. And when does God bring Naomi back? At exactly the time God wanted to bring her back. At the time, she'd be able to have food to sustain her. She didn't even see that. Didn't see it at all. So how are we going to get, how are we going to get in the story where the blinders are going to come off Naomi? How are we going to get in this story, in your walk with Christ, where the blinders are going to come off? Well, it starts with the bitterness that is in your heart. What are we going to do with that? Are we just going to continue to, to allow it to fester and get worse? I want to give you, I want to give you a couple of choices here to illustrate the importance of trusting God in the valley. I just want to give you two choices. I don't want you to say out loud which one you would choose. Internally, I want you to make the choice. Option A. Here's option A. God says to you, I'm going to give you all of your dreams, everything that you want. I'm going to give it all to you. All of your dreams will be fulfilled. You'll live a long life with no sickness. All of your kids will be happy and healthy. Your marriage will be happy and healthy. You'll have plenty of money, plenty of resources. You'll have the best job. You'll have the title. You'll have your name up in lights. All of your dreams are going to be fulfilled. God says to you, I'm going to give you this option. I'm going to give it all to you. It's all yours. But the one thing you will not be able to do in the entirety of your life is bring glory to me. You can have all that the world offers, and you can be happy and healthy and never have to worry about cancer and you'll die old age with your family around you with everything fulfilled, everything you want to do, but none of it will bring glory to me. Would you choose option A? Let me give you option B. Option B is, God says, well, you're going to live a normal human existence and then in that normal human existence in a fallen, broken world, there's, there could be the possibility of cancer and there could be the possibility of a broken marriage and there could be the possibility of a child getting sick. There could be the possibility of you losing the job, but there could be a possibility of poverty. All of that is part of the human existence, but yet in all of that, you'll be able to bring me glory. Would you choose option B or option A? I wonder what Naomi would have chosen, especially when she went to Moab. Would she have chosen A? Give me everything that I want, all of my dreams fulfilled. God's glory, uh, what would you choose? Because as we walk through the rest of the story in the weeks ahead, that's going to become a real question that you're going to need to answer. Because I think oftentimes our religious side, our, our side that wants to put on the religious face, we would say, oh yeah, I want to bring glory to God. Well, if you do, then why are you so angry and bitter about the problems you're having to face? You see how those two work. You're going to see that as we walk through this book. Just a few things I want you to consider before we close. First thing I want you to think about is and this is a hard ask. Maybe we should trust God in the middle of our broken dreams. In the middle of our broken dreams, Satan is telling you, do not give God any more of your life. You know why he's saying that? Because God, because Satan doesn't want God to receive any glory. That's what he's been about from the moment he fell from heaven. He's telling you, why would you give God any glory when God is responsible for the mess you're in? God gave you cancer. God gave you this addiction. God gave you that broken marriage. Why would you give him any glory? The problem with that is, is that Satan is lying to you and you're believing it. And while you're believing the lies, you're not seeing how God is working at all. So maybe 
We should do the outrageous thing of just trusting God with our circumstances and our pain and our failures, our broken dreams, the things that didn't work out the way we wanted them to. Maybe we just trust God in that moment and say, God, I don't understand all of this. But you know what, God, I know, and this is an anchor that anchors my soul, that you are good, that you are loving, that I belong to you. And even though I can't make sense of all this, I'm going to trust you in the middle of it. That's the exact thing Satan does not want you to do. You know what that is in that moment? That's worship and adoration for your father. Trusting your father is worshiping your father, trusting him enough to know that, that he's in control and all this is going to work out for our good and his glory. Secondly, you need to accept the fact that God's blessings often flow through other people. You see what happens in our bitterness and our anger, we isolate, right? We isolate from everyone else, either intentionally or everybody else just kind of stays away from us because you're a bitter, angry person and nobody wants to be around you. But nonetheless, the results are the same. We become alone. And the worst thing for you to do is in your bitterness, isolate yourself because it's through other people that God's going to have just the right word at just the right moment, just the right gift at just the right moment, just the right presence in the moment of the mess you're in to simply not be like Job's friends. You remember the story of Job? Job's friends came in and they said, we're going to fix you, Job. Did they fix him? No, they made it 10 times worse. Sometimes the best thing we can do as a friend is simply sit in the mess with the person and not try to fix them. Amen? Some of you have never been tried to be fixed before. I mean, sometimes the best thing you can do as a friend is not try to fix them. Just simply be with them. Amen? Amen. Often God works through other people to bring those blessings into your life. Third, let's start to look for God at work in the good and the bad. You know, it's easy when everything's going well. It's, ah, God's blessing me, right? God's blessing me with money and jobs and health. And, you know, we find it easy that in that moment that we, we bless God. But you know what's interesting about the human predicament? Is that even when God's blessing, we tend to take credit for it. I mean, on one hand, we'll say, yeah, God is blessing me. But on the other hand, deep down, our pride and our ego is rising up. And, and we begin to take credit for the things that God is doing. Isn't it interesting that even in the mountaintops, even in the places where God is pouring out his blessings in our life, we switch that all around and make it about us. But then the very instance that all turns south, the very instance we don't have the money anymore or the influence anymore or the power anymore or the job talent, all that goes away. Guess what happens in that moment? We switch from taking the credit to what? Blaming God. Isn't that interesting? Man, what a, what a messed up race of people we are. That's the, that's the broken nature of sin. In that blessing, in your good health, your prosperity, the money that God's giving you, the stable job, maybe we take all of that and say, God, how can I use this for your kingdom? How can I use this to bless you? How can I use this to worship you? And then when everything turns south, bad health, poverty, lack, failures, broken dreams. Maybe, maybe instead of being bitter about that, we run to God's refuge. We run to him and say, God, I don't, I'm not demanding you tell me why all this is happening. I'm, I just want to be with you because I love you. Finally, this is a rather simple thing, but maybe, maybe it's time for us to be a friend and seek a friend just like Ruth. Are you that kind of friend? 
Do you have any friends like that? Do you have any friends that you can call up two in the morning and they'll show up and they'll be there in the morning for you. They'll be there tomorrow for you. Do you have anybody like that? Now, I'm not talking about those 3,000 Facebook friends you've got. Because interestingly enough, somebody did a study. There's always somebody doing a study on something, right? Somebody somewhere did a study and said, how many of the people you have on Facebook as your friends are actually your friends? And they defined it by people who would show up in the middle of the night, show up to, to wherever you were to actually be a help. And, and they come up with this. They said only about four out of 150 friends, only four out of 150 will come to your aid when you need it. I wonder if it's that high. I don't know. Just wondering about that. How many real friends do you have? Or better yet, how many people are you that kind of friend to? Now, of course, that starts, if you're married, that starts within that marriage relationship, right? It doesn't end there. Folks, as we walk through the book of Ruth, we're going to wrestle with this whole idea of God working in the brokenness. What we're going to see ahead in the weeks ahead as we walk through this book is God doing something miraculous and beautiful and amazing in spite of the pain and the brokenness of Naomi and her family. And if God did that thousands of years ago in this story, and we know that God hasn't changed, that God has something for you today through the life of Ruth and Naomi that can change your life. Father in heaven, you're far better to us than we deserve. And Lord, that's your grace at work in our life. And Father, we've been the recipients of your provision, your goodness, your love, your salvation. Father, you have provided for us hand over foot. But Father, I understand and I know what it's like to get in a place like where Naomi was. That in that moment, we begin to listen to the voices in our head that begin to make us doubt about who you are, your very character. And Father, in that place, those roots of bitterness begin to grow deep. And the next thing you know, we're just angry. Angry at you, angry at everyone, angry all the time. And it spills out in all areas of our life, and we hurt people as a result. And Father, I believe, I believe, Lord, there may be some here today that are in that place. They haven't revealed it to anyone because they're embarrassed on one hand. But on the other hand, they want to put the mask on and play the part when, in fact, their heart has become very cold and indifferent. Father, you know who they are. You're looking at their hearts even now. And so, Father, I pray that in this moment they would respond with obedience to you. They would accept your grace and mercy. That they would be honest with you, just as Naomi was. That maybe right now in this moment, what's needed most is that they would just cry out to you in all their honesty and just say, Lord, they're angry, they're, they're upset. And Father, if they're blaming you, they would just simply be honest with you about that. It's only then that the healing can begin. More than anything else, Lord, it all begins at that moment we surrender to Christ. His salvation, the good news of the gospel, it's only through that that we are restored. So maybe, Lord, that's the beginning point. Maybe that's the starting point this morning. So have your will in your way, Father. Draw people to yourself as only you can. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's worship. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist Church.